The podcast you are about to hear tells the story of a Katsi man named Slumuk. Members of the Katsi First Nation have been instrumental in us telling the story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Katsi people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Just before 8 a.m. on January 16th, 1891, the hangman arrived at a condemned man's jail cell. Without complaint, the man filed into the procession that headed toward the gallows. He walked firmly up the steps to the platform and faced the crowd below. The hangman quickly adjusted the noose as the priest commenced a final prayer. At eight o'clock exactly, the bolt was drawn and the man dropped eight feet to a painless death. His name was Slumuk and he had just paid the ultimate penalty for his crime. Not long after his death, rumors surfaced that he had discovered a lucrative and hidden stash of gold in the mountains, said to be worth billions. And just before he was hanged, he muttered these words as a warning to anyone who dared to search for his gold mine. Nika Memlus, mein Memlus. Loosely translated from the Chinook language, the words mean, when I die, the mine dies. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse, Slumuk's Gold. Episode two, Trial and Execution. Slumuk's story begins in the late 1800s, about 30 minutes from what is now downtown Vancouver. His story and mine are intertwined, and I got closer to it than I ever expected. When I became part of the adventure television docuseries called Dead Man's Curse. If you're joining me for the first time on this journey through history, I recommend you go back to the beginning as we investigate Slumuk's life, the curse, and walk in his footsteps. And if we're lucky, we might find a little bit of that infamous gold. I'm your guide, along with a mountaineer, a truth seeker, and a way shower that make up the rest of the team from Dead Man's Curse. In our travels, we'll also be joined by a host of experts and members from the Katsi and Stolo First Nations to sort fact from fiction and give Slumuk a voice from the other side of the veil. We'll be using a few different sources, including newspaper articles and court records from the 1800s, which use archaic words to describe indigenous people that can be offensive to some listeners. They're only used here as a way to describe how events were reported in the press at the time. When we last left off, a man named Slumak shot and killed a man named Louis B. on September 8, 1890, along the reedy shores of what was known then as Lilwit Slough, near the vast expanse of Pitt Lake in southern British Columbia. In the wake of the shooting, Slumak escaped into the virtually impenetrable wilderness surrounding Pitt Lake, an area in which he had likely spent his entire life. Authorities from the city of New Westminster many of whom were descendants of recent European settlers, mounted a ferocious manhunt for Slumuk. In the process, an entire indigenous community was raised and the residents, mostly the Katsi First Nation, 
which had called the Pit Lake region home for generations, were sent 20 kilometers down the Fraser River to reservations. Those in power ordered the immediate arrest of anyone who left the reservations, so no help would be given to the fugitive in an effort to starve Slumuk out of the forest and into custody. More than six weeks after the killing of Louis B., the accused murderer Slumuk, a quote, insane, bloodthirsty old villain, according to the newspaper at the time, finally turned himself into authorities on October 27, 1890. I introduced Taylor Starr to you in the last episode. She's the true seeker on our amazing Dead Man's Curse team, and she's spent countless hours researching Slumuk's story because for her, this story is personal. Taylor is the great-great-grandniece of Slumuk. On the TV show Dead Man's Curse, we heard her speak about the research with her father, Don Froze. He's a wayshore from Stolo First Nations who keeps us all on the right path. As you can imagine, Taylor and Don were disappointed in the way the news reports covered Slumuk's story, even through the early part of the 20th century. Indian killer wants terror of Pit Lake. Yeah, why do they have to say Indian killer? Could have just people, said killer, right? Yeah, gets people to read the like yeah. read the article, like, oh, what is this about? So it, it, it looks like the media is, they're painting Slimak like the, this terrible villain. Yeah. Of course, they were at that time so oppressed, their right of governance to traditional justice was, was gone. When doing the research on Dead Man's Curse, it was definitely disappointing to read these kinds of stories in the press and know that someone was unfairly slandered just to sell papers. And that gets to the heart of what we're doing here, searching for the truth and hoping to reconcile with events in the past so that we can all find some peace. Continuing with Slumac's story as it was laid out in the press. On October 27, 1890, the Daily Columbia newspaper reported that Slumac sent a family member, his nephew, to some of the Indian agent Patrick McTiernan, who brought two indigenous policemen with him to the sandy shoreline of Pitt Lake for the arrest. There they found Slumac, emaciated, in tattered clothes, and barely clinging to life after weeks of hiding in the rocky and treacherous wilderness surrounding the lake. The papers reported that Slumak hadn't eaten in days when McTiernan and his deputies took him directly to the provincial jail in New Westminster. Upon arrival, he was treated by the jail physician who thought Slumak's outlook was grim. Weak from exposure to the harsh, frigid conditions of the forest as the Canadian winter crept closer and closer around him. It was doubtful that he would even survive to face the trial of the murder of Louis B. But against those odds, Slumak survived. On November 3rd, 1890, Slumak was brought into the district court at New Westminster for a pretrial hearing in front of Justice of the Peace Captain George Pindra, who had been sent to the scene of the crime months earlier to investigate and was present when Louis B's body was brought to the authorities. In the last episode, I told you about Warden William Moresby, who led the manhunt for Slumak. Like Moresby and most of the white population of the province at that time, Captain George Pindra was a settler born in London, England in 1831. When he was 15 years old, he left school to fight in the Crimean War and left the military in 1874. When he was 30 years old, he moved to British Columbia to try his hand at ranching. When that failed a year after, he was appointed assistant Indian agent at New Westminster, 
a government role almost always filled by white men to manage the indigenous population. Then he became a notary public, and by the time of Slumak's pretrial hearing, he was justice of the peace, placed to rule objectively on matters in which he also had a hand in investigating. Pittendraw was a major landowner in the Pitt Lake region, and in an interesting side note to a story about curses and cursed gold, just two years after the hearing, in an incident that somewhat mirrored Louis B.'s demise, one of Pittendraw's adult sons died under mysterious circumstances. His lifeless body was found in a canoe near the mouth of the Pitt River. Nearly all the evidence and testimony presented before the Justice of the Peace, Captain George Pittendraw, had to be translated from Chinook into English. And the interpreter was Jason Allard, son of a Cowichan First Nation mother of royal rank, and a French-Canadian father, instrumental in colonizing the region under the banner of the Hudson Bay Company. It's important to note here that in 1890, murder carried a mandatory death penalty. You'll remember that according to the newspaper reports, a man named Seymour was the principal witness to the crime. And his accusation left no doubt that Slumak had killed Louis B. Slumak did not deny it. According to the court records of the pretrial hearing, when presented with charges against him, Slumak responded with, quote, I have nothing to say. Accused persons almost never said anything at a preliminary hearing. And even if they did, it would not have been under oath. Any statement of responsibility would be admissible against him at his trial. The records show that then, three men testified against Slumak. Seymour, Charlie, and Swanaset, all of the Catesy First Nation. The court heard testimony that Seymour had been canoe fishing in Lillooet Slough with Louis B., when they heard a gunshot. He said, quote, Louis B. proposed to go across to where the shot was fired as he thought it might be white men there. When we got to the shore, I saw the prisoner Slumak coming out of the long grass and I told Louis B. he was coming, end quote. As the apparent sole eyewitness to the crime, Seymour offered the most damning testimony. Quote, when Slumak got near Louis B., he asked him, what he was firing at. Slumok gave no answer, but kept walking towards our canoe, preparing his gun. Without any further word, he presented his gun at Louis B., the deceased, and fired. Slumak then ran towards the canoe, took out his ammunition, and reloaded. After the shot was fired, I saw blood coming out of Louis B.'s arm at the back of his shoulder. He fell overboard and sank in about two and a half feet of water. I jumped on shore immediately after Louis B. was shot, as I was afraid of getting shot as well. Louis B. had given no provocation whatsoever, and the prisoner was putting powder in his gun again. I asked the prisoner as I jumped on the shore why he had shot the deceased. He said he wanted to drive us away, that he did not want any persons to go up there. I waited in the grass, hidden for a short time, to see what Slumak would do. He was holding his gun during the time I was hid, which was about 20 minutes. I thought I might be shot. The Columbian reported that while several members of the indigenous community, including Katsy and possibly other First Nations, occupied seats in the courtroom and took a good deal of interest in the proceedings, Slumuk himself listened to the evidence against him with utmost apathy, as if he didn't care that his very life was in the balance. 
Unlike the weathered, worn figure that they had just described a week prior, the press now painted Slumuk as a robust, youthful man, greatly improved in health and appearing strong enough to undergo the tedium of the trial. They reported he was, quote, a rather intelligent-looking man of about 60 years of age, and that his face expressing a great deal of determination, even ferocity, end quote. A week later, on November 11th, a few days before his official trial was to commence, Slumuk's condition was reported to have worsened, and again, he was possibly not fit to stand trial. The paper said he was very weak and didn't seem to have gathered strength as rapidly as might be expected, considering the attention and comforts he was receiving from the medical superintendents and jail officials. In fact, McTiernan, the Indian agent, believed that Slumuk would not live long in confinement, as it was reported in the Daily Columbian to be, quote, a well-known fact that an Indian sentenced to a long term of imprisonment soon pines away and dies, end quote. While this was a prevalent stereotype at the time, in custody, Slumuk would have been taken away from his way of life. He could no longer live off the land, no longer feel the earth under his feet, breathe fresh mountain air, or practice his cultural and spiritual ways. Slumuk had been deprived of his traditional medicines, including traditional drumming and singing. Slumuk's identity as an indigenous person was taken away from him. It was quite possible, the newspaper speculated, that Slumuk might escape the gallows from natural causes before spring. The trial of Slumuk and the killing of Louis B. finally began on the morning of November 14, 1890, 68 days after the shooting. Presiding over the case was Justice Montague, William Tierwit Drake. <laughs> what a name. He was a barrister, judge, sawmill owner, and former mayor of Victoria, the provincial capital. Because Canada was a British colony under the reign of Queen Victoria, the prosecutor was known as the Crown Council. And in this instance, it was a well-established barrister named Louis Philip Eckstein. Eckstein requested the arraignment of Slumuk for murder. Thomas Clive Atkinson, a young barrister and police magistrate born in the province of Ontario, served as Slumuk's defense counsel. The jury consisted of 15 settlers, again, all white men. Not a single woman nor a single indigenous person sat on Slumuk's jury. At the time, court proceedings were heard only a few times a year. This was done for many reasons. Jurisdictions were often very large, so judges had to travel with great difficulty while also having other professions. Atkinson asked for the case to be adjourned until the spring because two important witnesses for the defense were apparently unable to attend. Sulamuk's deposition on November 14th details why an Indian man named Moody and a woman named Florence Reed were needed in court. Quote, I cannot safely proceed to trial without their attendance as witnesses to depose to the following facts. That Louis B., the deceased, was habitually quarreling with me and that he frequently harassed me with improper language and threatened me more than once with violence and I was in constant fear of him." End quote. Atkinson assured the judge that Moody and Reed would be available in the spring and a postponement request was made. 
Next, Atkinson presented medical affidavits testifying that Slumek was not physically fit to stand trial on a grave charge as murder. All of the affidavits were denied. Justice Drake said that the case for Slumek's ill health had not been made. Besides, the medical affidavits had not been submitted to the Crown Counsel. Eckstein, the prosecutor, argued that no case had been made for postponement. Justice Drake agreed. There was no basis for postponing the case. Slumuk's trial would proceed. The charge of murder was read and Atkinson speaking on behalf of Slumuk pleaded not guilty. The affidavit was then read stating that the two important witnesses for the defense, Moody and Florence Reed, were unable to be procured. Then Eckstein read contra-affidavits stating both witnesses had been in town for the past few days. Justice Drake said he could not allow slight matters to interfere where a man was on trial for his life, and that if the case was to be postponed at all, it would have to wait until the spring term, several months from now, and after the court's winter recess. William Moresby, a governor of the jail and the man you'll remember from the intense manhunt to capture Slumok, told Justice Drake that he was certain he could produce both witnesses by 11 the next morning. Justice Drake adjourned the court until that time. Moresby again took the Fraser River, the watery artery of the Lower Mainland, by steamship, determined to find the defense witnesses and avoid the postponement of Slumuk's trial for at least six months and possibly more. Time was of the essence. To Moresby, the press, and the general European settler population of the region, the fear was probably that postponing the trial would almost certainly mean Slumuk would avoid the noose, either by natural death or some other technicality. According to newspapers, Moresby found Moody and Florence Reed staying among the indigenous community downriver from New Westminster. But, I should note, there is no record of their testimony in court. On November 15th, the Slumok murder trial continued. On that day, the indigenous men Seymour, Charlie, and Swanaset testified on the stand. As the lone eyewitness, Seymour again laid out his version of the events of September 8th. And the other two men corroborated Seymour's story, as they claimed to have heard the fatal gunshot and helped recover Louis B.'s body. In addition to the damning testimony of witnessing Slumuk shoot Louis B., the court heard that Seymour accompanied William Moresby on a search to arrest Slumuk on September 10th. That's when he saw an axe in Slumok's cabin, which he claimed he'd seen before in Louis B.'s possession, supposedly from the very canoe B. was in when he was shot. Richard Walker, the physician who performed the post-mortem examination on Louis B., testified that B. was indeed killed by a single bullet. Constable Robert Anderson, who had been on patrol with Moresby to arrest Slumok, testified that he had seen Slumok on the shore and shot at him when he saw Slumok's rifle trained on him. Moresby also testified in agreement with Seymour, stating that in his search to arrest Slumok, he found an axe belonging to Louis B. in Slumok's cabin. After two days and lasting no more than seven or eight hours, the Crown closed its case against Slumok. The defense called no witnesses. At 3.45 in the afternoon on November 15, 1890, the jury left the courtroom to deliberate. 
A mere 15 minutes later at 4 p.m., the verdict was in. Quote, The jurors for Our Lady the Queen, upon their oath, present that Slumak, an Indian, on the eighth day of September in the year of our Lord, 1890, at Pitt River in the county of Westminster, did feloniously, willfully, and of his malice and forethought kill and murder one Louis B. against the peace of Our Lady the Queen, her crown and dignity, end quote. Justice Drake, who had no leeway for lighter punishment, sentenced him to, quote, be hanged by the neck until dead, two months hence, on January 16th, 1891, end quote. Not much has been found in contemporary newspaper records of the two dark winter months between Slumuk's sentencing and his execution. One of the only stories comes from December 24th, 1890, when the colonist newspaper reported that Slumuk, the convicted murderer, was getting along nicely and was in good spirits. He had inquired a few days earlier about which of the keepers would hang him. And during the previous day or two, he had been more anxious about his fate paying more attention to the priest, Father William Morgan, a Catholic priest born in Wales who had only immigrated to British Columbia just three years earlier. But as the day of Slumak's execution approached, all of the region's newspapers turned their attention, once again to the gruesome killing of Louis B. and all that followed. Somehow, by the morning of his hanging, January 16, 1891, Slumak was described as both wizened and robust. The Vancouver Daily News ventured Slumuk to be over 70 years old, but hardy in hail. The colonist aged Slumuk at over 80 with snow white hair and beard, but also strong and hardy, fully prepared to meet his death. The paper reminded readers that Slumuk, in his younger years, before white settlers arrived on the mainland of BC, had allegedly killed 10 men. It was only one man, however, for whose death Slumak was to be held accountable. Father Morgan, the Catholic priest, visited Slumak every day in his jail cell in the weeks prior to his execution in a steadfast effort to convert him to Christianity and at least save his soul, if not his body. In Slumak's final week among the living, Father Morgan was accompanied by an indigenous catechist, a spiritual leader named Peter Pierre, who slept in Slumak's cell with him and prayed with him day and night. The Vancouver Daily World newspaper reported that Slumak, nearing the end of his life, received the priest's visits with evident pleasure, some sort of bright spot amid the darkening days. Leading up to the day before Slumak's execution, there were calls for clemency from some of the newspapers and even from among the populace. Considering his advanced age and the fact that he had never had any incidents with law enforcement until the killing of Louis B., many hoped that Slumak would be spared from the death penalty and receive life in prison. At this point, at this moment of truth, Taylor Starr, our truth seeker, and the great-great-grandniece of Slumak will continue the story. At 7.15 on the morning of January 16th, in the dark pre-dawn of the winter morning, Father Morgan and Peter Pierre went to Slumak's jail cell. Slumak had slept well, the newspaper reported, and eaten a hearty breakfast which could have been bread, 
cheese, a hot cup of tea, or a warm bowl of oatmeal. Father Morgan found Slimak to be calm and quiet, but also resigned to his fate. On the morning of his execution, Slumak was baptized by the priest. Now the next part of the story may sound a little familiar, as reported by the various newspapers at the time. By 7.40 that morning, as dawn broke over the city on Slumak's last day alive, some 50 to 100 people had assembled in front of the office, indigenous community members, reporters, and townspeople. The executioner, dressed in all black from head to toe, passed through the jail office, and the crowd of onlookers moved towards the wooden scaffold in the jail yard. The jail governor, Morrisby, who had initiated the search for Slumac over four months earlier, along with several officers and the hangman, arrived to test the ropes and lever to ensure that the entire contraption would work as designed. We should note here that when Morrisby died five years later, he would be credited with capturing over 100 criminals, of whom 27 were hanged. He would have been an expert at ensuring the proper functioning of the gallows. As the hour of Slumac's execution fast approached, those gathered could see a line forming in the corridor behind the barred windows of the jail. Just before 8 o'clock, Slumac appeared in the yard. Supporting his slight frame on both sides were two wardens. Behind him reciting prayers walked Father Morgan and Peter Pierre, the catechist who had spent every night with Slumac. Now before I go any further, I want to let you know that you might find this next part a little disturbing. Appearing feeble and weak in his tweed trousers and flannel shirt, but no hat, the Vancouver Daily News noted Slumac needed help mounting the scaffold. Quickly, the warden tied Slumac's legs and covered his face with a black cap. The rope was placed in position. According to the official record, Slumac remained silent. And while Father Morgan recited prayers, the hangman drew the bolt and the trapdoor fell from beneath Slumac's feet. Slumac's body dropped 8 feet 5 inches, a lengthy drop considering his extraordinarily small neck. He was pronounced dead 3 minutes and 58 seconds after the lever was pulled. Father Morgan, visibly shaken, remained on the scaffold singing the prayers for the dead. All in all, the authorities considered the entire proceeding to be executed perfectly. The crowd of onlookers remained at the gallows until the black flag was hoisted. Several Indian women and members of the indigenous community waited around the jail for more than an hour after the execution, the newspaper reported. Slumac's body was taken down and he was buried in an unmarked grave in New Westminster. How are you feeling about what you just told us, Taylor? It makes me feel disheartened because they go in such detail to how Slumac had passed away. It's it's hard to believe that they would go in such detail over a First Nations person at the time or Indian person at the time. And you don't really see these kind of like very intricate details when anyone else was hung. You're right. That does seem like a lot, which begs the question of why. Why did that happen? Could it have been because Slumak was known to have gold? 
Is that why this story was covered so extensively? Now you at home might be wondering, what about the curse? What about the gold? Ever since I first heard about Slumog, there was a curse attached. The legend, the magazine articles, the TV specials, they all said that Slumog cursed anyone who dared to seek out his gold. When they first reported about the killing, the newspaper said that Louis B. called Slumog a sorcerer, a pagan, a devil, all words that supposedly triggered Slumog into a deadly rage. But none of these papers, none of these sources, reported any utterance from Slumok in the minutes before his execution, let alone any mention of a gold mine worth billions. What about the words Nika Memlus mine Memlus? Who would have heard them escape Slumok's lips as he died on the gallows? More importantly, who was Slumok? He's the man at the heart of the story. So who was he really? He was obviously very goal-orientated. You know, when he found out that there was value to gold, I think of him as one of our early entrepreneurs. He would have been a, a probably a really good poker player or something like that. You know, like he he understood games and he he must have been um, very creative because he he made a point of figuring out how gold you know was so important. And did he really murder to protect his gold, or was it self defense? Our people along the Fraser had zero connection to gold. It becomes an obsession. Remember, I told you the official record might not be all there is to this story. And all stories have to begin somewhere. All this and more as we travel deeper into the legend of Slumok to uncover the truth behind the dead man's curse. Thank you for joining me, and special thanks to Taylor Starr for her work on this episode. Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Rosalind Kofor. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold Mershon and Gail Starr. Our indigenous cultural and heritage consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific media production. 